Look with me to the book of Isaiah. We continue our study in Isaiah. And the trustworthiness of God, part six. We've been looking through chapters 36 to 39. We find ourselves this morning, 37, 21 to 38. The Holy One fights for you. And I can say, as you see there, everyone, even the most mature warriors of the faith need encouragement. We all need it. Even the most faithful need it. We can also say that whatever battle we face in life, the true child of faith can, in fact, rest assured that God is fighting with you, for you. Paul's words, in one sense, can ring true. Remember when Paul said, if God is for us, then who can stand against us? Um, It's stacked in our favor in a way that um, is immeasurable, really. And now, as I realize these truths, that is, the truths about God fighting for us, fighting our battles, I mean, they can be misconstrued and used to even claim victory in areas that God never intended. That's even what, in part, I saw when I was in Africa, that people will talk about the victory that we have in the Lord, and they will talk about casting out demons and calling down strongholds and rebuking Satan. And this is not what the Lord intended. Did he intend for us to be able to fight against spiritual strongholds? Absolutely, because we see that in Ephesians chapter 6, that we are involved in a spiritual warfare. But at times, um, the issues that they consider to be um, spiritual issues really aren't, and they're to an extreme. I just saw a quote recently that someone posted um, by John MacArthur, and they said, why is it that some of you are rebuking Satan, thinking that he'll listen to you, and you can't even get your kids to obey you. I mean, think about that for a moment. Let's start there. Now, you're going to say, rebuke thee, get thee behind me, Satan. Oh, no, you said it. Let me stop my plan against the kingdom of God. And then you say to your kid, go pick up your shoes. I don't think so. Um, Think about that for a moment. Some of it gets to be a bit ridiculous. However, you know, think about it. Uh, I think what's important for us to understand is that God at times does not intervene until lessons are learned, that he waits. That is, there are moments in life when we're like Hezekiah and the people of Judah, God allows us to come to the end of ourselves. And we realize that divine intervention is the only option. Human resources have failed, and the only way that we can change the situation is by the Lord's help. And I think we would also say that we wish that we would learn those lessons earlier on. I think all of us in this room may have been or had an experience where I wish I had trusted the Lord sooner or earlier. I wish I had humbled myself earlier. I realize that now there is no answer except for that which comes from the Lord. Now, in Isaiah 37, 1 to 28, God's response to the prayers of king, that is the king, Hezekiah, and the people. We want to learn from that. And this is a response that I think every believer should cherish because it's a reminder that we serve a trustworthy God. And that trustworthy God is, in fact, the anchor of life. And when we think about um, anchoring ourselves, I think some of us, if not all of us every day, we need to drop anchor. And in doing so, 
we can avoid being tossed here and there by the circumstances of life. And if we would drop anchor, that is, in our faith in the Lord, um, just as a ship does that, we will have stability in life. Now, the circumstances that we see here in Isaiah 37, we mentioned it before, historically, they're just not limited to that time. That is, they reach into 2019 and they reach into the future as well. But because the truth is this, God is a trustworthy God that will never disappoint. Do you agree that God will never disappoint? It's impossible for him to disappoint us. He is trustworthy. He will never disappoint you. So this morning, uh, I want us to consider four truths, four truths under this heading, the encouragement for those who trust a holy God. And we're going to see that um, in verses 21 to 38. Oh, we might even say the encouragement for those who rest um, in a trustworthy God. There's encouragement that comes when we rest and the Lord. And Hezekiah and the people of Judah and those that are in Israel are specifically in Jerusalem need encouragement in view of this battle that they're facing. And I believe that everyone who gives these thoughts, who give these thoughts serious consideration will. I think you're going to enlarge your view of God. And enlarging your view of God I think that you'll be more stable when the trials of life come because trials, as has been said any number of times, I'm sure you've heard it before, perhaps you've even said it yourself, either you have just finished a trial, you're in the midst of a trial, or you're heading into one. Is that not true? Now, at times, we don't know when that next one is going to come, but inevitably, it will come. And so, if we have dropped anchor in our faith and the trustworthiness of God, then when they come we will find stability for life. And so I want us to consider these four headings uh, that support the other, which is, number one, God honors himself by sovereignly using prayer. Hezekiah went to the house of God and he prayed. And we're going to see how God sovereignly uses it. Number two, God honors himself by rebuking the pride of man. God is going to rebuke Shennacherib and the Assyrians, and we're going to see that unfold and the significance of it. God honors himself by providing a prophetic announcement. God is going to say, this is what I'm going to do. And then God honors himself by faithfully displaying his wrath. As this section is going to end, as God's wrath falls on the Assyrians. Now, before we go there, uh, there's an outline that I want us to see. We can look at that next slide which is, this is where we've been. Okay, we've looked at the character of those who rest in a trustworthy God, beginning in 36, 1 to 3. The trials of those who rest in a trustworthy God, because then the Assyrians come and they are intimidating or seeking to intimidate Hezekiah and the people that are in Jerusalem. The response of those who rest in a trustworthy God, which is, God, you are rebuking us, we repent, but yet we want to trust you. And then the temptation of those who trust in a trustworthy God, a rest in a trustworthy God, we see that 37, 8 to 13, because now that God has given them encouragement, there's a temptation to say, don't believe the encouragement that the Lord has given you. So they don't stop. 
And then number six was the prayer of those who rest in a trustworthy God. We looked at that the last time we were together several weeks ago, and that is Hezekiah's prayer, that lofty prayer to God, essentially saying, God, will you intervene on our behalf? And then we come to what we'll call the seventh movement throughout this passage, the encouragement for those who rest in a trustworthy God. And underneath that heading, we're going to see these four developments here. So the first one is this. God honors himself by sovereignly using prayer. Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Shennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. So we notice that God honors himself by sovereignly using prayer. Notice I want you to see something. If you look at verse 21, it says then. And this is a marker throughout. If you go back to even um, chapter 37, we see it. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribes and the elders, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah. Verse 8. This is where the temptation starts. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for it heard that the king had left Lachish. Verse 14, then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And then verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And now that the prayer is completed, if you will, it says in verse 21, then Isaiah sends a word to him. Notice in verse 30, again, another marker. Then this shall be a sign for you that you will eat this year which grows of itself and the second year which springs from the same and the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards and eat fruit. Then in verse 36, another marker that's here. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 of the Assyrians. And we see these markers throughout as the narrative unfolds. And we see one major one here. Hezekiah has prayed. Now God responds to his prayer through Isaiah by sending him a message. God has heard you. God has let me know that he has heard you. And this is the encouragement that he gives you. And right here, there's this beautiful tension between sovereignty and responsibility. Um, And some are confused by this reality. That is, God uses means to bring about his sovereign plan. He brings, he uses means for his decrees to unfold in time. And prayer is a means that God uses for his sovereign plan to unfold. Example, we believe that God sovereignly elects men and he predestines them before the foundation of the world, do we not? Um, Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So if we're chosen before the foundation of the world, then some may even say, then why pray? Well, Paul doesn't take that approach. Paul, this great, one, this great author of election and predestination, says what? I pray for the salvation of my kindred according to the flesh. He prays for them because he realizes that somewhere in heaven, which humanity cannot fully reconcile, that our prayers are participating in this sovereign plan unfolding in time. And this is why he prays for them. Some may say, then why pray if it has no effect? Well, it does. In God's sovereign plan, they do. So we should pray. 
And we see here that we should be a praying people. We talked about prayer several weeks ago and some of the reverence that comes with prayer. And in here, this should be a motivator for us to say, Lord, I will pray for the circumstances surrounding my life and the lives of others. I will pray that you would divinely intervene in these circumstances. Be people of prayer. Don't take a passive approach to the events that are taking place around you, not only in the events of your life personally, but also the events that are taking place in the church and in the world. Be a praying people. Number two is this. God honors himself by rebuking the pride of man. Notice as the response begins to unfold in 22, we'll call it 22B through 29. So notice what is communicated here. This is the word which the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Jerusalem, or of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have reproached and blasphemed and against whom you have raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. Now, we need to understand, well, what's being addressed and to whom is it being addressed? When God makes this statement in verse 22, she has despised you and mocked you. Initially, one may think, well, it's the Assyrians that are mocking Jerusalem, but it's not. God is saying that Jerusalem, the people of God, will mock you. They will despise you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you. And he's speaking in a language that is prophetic. It's going to happen is what he's trying to communicate here. And eventually it would happen. Because what is going to take place? Um, The Assyrians are going to be defeated and the Israelites will look at them and see God has triumphed over you. They will be despised. And notice, he says, but it is against the Holy One of Israel. This language of raising your voice haughtily and lifting up your eyes. It's a statement that we see throughout scripture, an idea of pride and arrogance that's communicating, but ultimately in verse 23, God says it is against me, the Holy One of Israel. And that's why we need to understand that God is the one that is fighting our battles. Say, for instance, when we go out and you witness to someone and they reject what you're saying, what is one truth that we should take away from that situation? Are they really rejecting us personally? No, they are not. They're rejecting what? Our message. They're rejecting our God. And granted, there may be some sting, and I think there should be to some degree, some sting when a person says to us, I don't want to hear it, or particularly when it's a relative that we're trying to share the gospel with, and they say, I don't want to hear that truth anymore. But ultimately, their issue is with the living God. You're rejecting his message, and they will give an account for that. One day, in my time in Africa, I was teaching um, I talked for a moment about a um, question came up about male and female differences, and I answered that question, and a number of other things came up, and I made the statement. I said, now, if you have issues with me, you shouldn't. Your issues are with the Word of God. You can take it up with Paul, yeah. and you can take it up with the Lord himself, um, not with me. It's clear what God is saying in this example. So God is rebuking the pride of man. But let's stop for a moment against the Holy One of Israel. There's significance to this title. And what is the significance of this title? How is it used even in Isaiah? Well, number one, it's a statement of God's uniqueness. God is a unique God. It's also a statement of intimacy. 
It's against me, the Holy One of Israel. I am fighting for you. I am in your midst. I fight with you. You might think about their great warriors throughout history, and actually one of them is Alexander the Great. And one thing that he was known for was being in the midst of the battle um, with his soldiers. And ultimately, he would die because of wounds that he received over the many years um, that wouldn't ultimately heal, and that would lead to his demise, if you will, and in part because he was in the field with his men. And so here, God is making a statement, it is against me, and I'm fighting for you even in your midst, which is what we saw even in Hezekiah's prayer earlier when he says, um, you are the Lord of hosts. You are the God of Israel. You're the God, as he says in verse 16, who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God of the nations, he says, and you are the creator of heaven and earth. And that thought, when he says, you are the one who's enthroned above the cherubim, it's saying that you are in our midst. Although you are holy and great and majestic God, you are there with us. And that should give us confidence. Because if he's for us, then it doesn't matter who is against us. This is also a statement of God's covenant commitment to his people. I am the Holy One of Israel. Now, if we were to think about this from a human standpoint and people that um, if you were involved in athletics that you would like to have on your team and you were to say, well, there is a, in sports, they'll have an all um, NFL team, an all soccer team, an all World Cup team, and it's the best of the best. And even if you had the best of the best, if you were a basketball player and you had the best all-time four other players, most likely you have a chance of doing what? Of winning. (laughs) And think about it to the nth degree when it comes to the sovereign God fighting for us. He is for us spiritually. So there's an impossibility of failure. Even if I had that all-star team and I'm on the team because I'm not much of a basketball player and they're four of the greats, let's say a a Michael Jordan and a Larry Bird, and I'm not sure who else. Those are the only two I can think of. <laughs> who else? Oh, Kobe Bryant and Shaq. Let's say that, right? Oh, LeBron James. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And if I had them, there's still a possibility if I got the ball that something bad could happen. But when it comes to the Lord being on our side, he overcomes our deficiencies. And this is what we see with Hezekiah. You are deficient. You are incomplete. You cannot fight against the Assyrians, but I am on your side. How about this use of Holy One in Isaiah? This is important for us to understand. The Holy One of Israel. Um, You see this idea, this phrase, this title, it occurs only 31 times in the Bible. 31 times in the Bible, the Holy One of Israel. Now, what's interesting is that this, of those 31 occurrences, do you know how many occur in Isaiah? 26 of them. Is Isaiah trying to make a point? In fact, he is. And interesting, if you looked at these occurrences of the Holy One of Israel, you'll find it's evenly divided. 13 times he would communicate the Holy One of Israel before chapter 4, then, I'm sorry, chapter 40, and then 40 and on, and then another 13 times of those 26 occurrences, which is also maybe some have thought that's another reason that we reject um, a two-authorship of Deuteronomy, that it is one author of this book, not a Deutero-Isaiah. So 
26 occurrences. There's one other occurrence that doesn't say Holy One of Israel. In chapter 29, 13, it says he's the Holy One of Jacob, which is simply another way of saying what? The Holy One of Israel. So the question is now, briefly, what does it mean that God is holy? If he is the Holy One of Israel, what does it mean? It means that God is separated from all that is unrighteous and tainted by the fall. It means that his separation from all that is sinful has an implication that God cannot be tempted by anything that is contrary to himself. Now, we are tempted by things that are contrary to our desires because we all desire to please God in every way, do we not? Uh, We all desire to be done with sin, do we not? I sure hope so, but we find ourselves still tempted and at times even yielding. Why? Because we still have the remnants of our former life. We're still in the flesh. But unlike God, there is no possibility because in his nature, there's no capacity to be tempted by things that are evil. And Isaiah 6, uh, as Isaiah here is crying out, holy, holy, holy. And that is a statement of God's total perfection in all things. God is perfect in every way. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, God's holiness is not simply the best we can know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. To be holy He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. We are conforming ourselves by God's grace to the image of God, are we not? We're seeking to be more like him every day. And we still struggle at times in not being like the Lord Jesus Christ. But God in his holiness is the absolute perfect standard of what is right. So there's no possibility of him failing. Now, in the book of Isaiah, how do we see this idea of holiness used or the Holy One of Israel used? There's several ways. Or we might, for a moment, let's back up. Let me say this. When we think about God's holiness, it is expressed this way. Because if we think about God's holiness being the perfection of who he is, then his holiness is expressed. You might even call it sort of the rays of his holiness. That is, uh, we see it expressed in grace. Why? Because God is holy, therefore grace is necessary. There must be divine intervention. Because God is a holy God, which means that all men are falling short of the glory of God. And the only way that man can have a relationship with God is by grace. So his holiness requires grace. There is a, the but God, if you will. It's Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Here we are sinners, but verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Divine intervention is necessary. We think about God's mercy is an expression even of his holiness because God must be merciful because God being a holy God then requires him to show sympathy towards his creatures. If he doesn't show us sympathy, then where would we be? Because the scripture also says this, who would be able to stand? No one can stand before God. See, God's holiness is also justice. Because God's justice is an expression of his holiness because an active standard is necessary. And that's why God says to men and to women that he requires justice of you to do what is right. A God of justice means he's a holy God. And also his holiness is expressed in his righteousness because God's holiness requires purity. 
And therefore, he looks to those who are pure in heart. So when he says he is the Holy One of Israel, this is what we should understand. And think with me for a moment. Also, because God is a holy God, then God's wrath is an expression even of his holiness because the violation of his holiness requires punishment. Requires punishment. These are all expressions of it. And the ways that God uses in the book of Isaiah, um, the Holy One of Israel. Let me look at several of them with me. Go with me to Isaiah 57. Now, stay with me. I know this is a lot of information at this point, but it's relevant to your life. And I pray that somehow it's going to help you have a more exalted view of God and having that exalted view, then you can say, I can, in fact, anchor myself in this God, knowing who he is. I can trust him absolutely. In Isaiah 57, 15, a great text. Um, So we can learn that the Holy One of Israel is also expressed in this way. God is worthy of exhortation and glory, but he also abides with the humble. Notice Isaiah 57. And what does it say? This great statement. I love this verse. For this says the high, verse 15, an exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell, God makes the statement himself in a high and holy place. But notice, and also with. So we see this idea. Here's this transcendent God, but also we see the eminence of God. And isn't that appropriate in the book of Isaiah? Because even as we celebrate during this Christmas time, we celebrate Emmanuel. And what is Emmanuel? Someone say it. God is with us. But he's only with whom? Amen. (laughs) That would be true. (laughs) The contrite and lowly of spirit. He was physically amongst everyone, but in an intimate way, in a covenant way, in a saving way, he is only with the contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite, which means a person has to come to grips with their deficiencies before they can have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He is opposed to the humble. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. And three, and we alluded to it earlier, but this great interaction that Isaiah has with the Lord, he sees him lofty and exalted. The train of his robe is filling the temple. And then notice what it says. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, for the earth to be full of the glory of God is not just a statement that we look into the heavens. And that is true. Psalm 19 tells us that. It's not just when we see a sunset. That's true. That's an expression of the glory of God. But it is more than that. It's the idea that God and who he is is demonstrated in him saving men and women. It's demonstrated in his sovereign control of all things. This is filling the glory of the land or the land is filled with his glory. Now, look with me at Isaiah 30. But there is a problem. God is a holy God, and men do not want to heed God's holiness. Like the rebellious Israelites, the world does not want to hear about a holy God. Look at Isaiah 30 and then verse 11. Um, I'll start at verse 9. It says, for this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. 
who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. You talk about, uh, is that not brazen or what? Essentially saying to an Isaiah, to a Jeremiah, to an Amos, don't prophesy what's right. Doesn't that sound familiar? Paul said, what is going to happen in the last days? People are going to accumulate to themselves what? Teachers who do what? Tickle the ears. Don't tell us that God is holy. Don't tell us that I have to commit my life. Don't talk about the lordship of Christ. Don't talk about I have to have to, I have, must go through difficulty or heartache and pain. Give me something that will tickle my ears. And that's why you see some of these deviations in doctrine that people gravitate toward it because it suits their flesh. Then notice what it says. Speak to us pleasant words. Notice what it says. Prophesy illusions, he says. Then notice verse 11. Oh my, listen to this. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Is that not direct to what? These people are rebellious people. And even hearing that, one is also, or at least you should realize, what a gracious God. I mean, these people are saying, don't tell us any more about God. We don't want to hear it. Give us illusions instead, not truth. But God is still patient with them. Yeah. See, there's more to be said about how Isaiah uses this throughout the book. But I want to move ahead. Go with me to Isaiah 37. Go back to Isaiah 37, if you will. Isaiah 37. So, yes, we should be a praying people. We notice that God is going to make his pronouncement against Assyria because ultimately the offense is against God, the Holy One of Israel. But notice verses 24 and 25. What does he do here? He rebukes their haughty and errant boasting. This is what we see here. Their errant boasting. Notice verse 24 says, Through your servants you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with many chariots, I have come up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. I cut down all the cedars and choice cypresses, and I will go up to the highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. So what boasting we see here from Shennacherib and even all the other previous leaders of the Assyrians and saying, look, we are this divine power. And as a matter of fact, there is this figurative and some call it sort of um, royal hyperbole that's being used to say we are like God. Because God is the one that dries up rivers. He's the one that dries up seas. He's the one that goes to the heights. But notice what it says. I came up. I cut down. I will go. I dug wells. I dried up. Is anyone that you can remember um, in scripture where they boasted about what they had done and what happened to them? Well, he's going to come later on. Well, Lucifer, absolutely. Look, I will exalt myself above the most high. And now we see here from the kings of Assyria, this boasting in things that they have not accomplished whatsoever. He may take credit for it, um, but ultimately, it's only because of God's hand that allowed it. 
Now, let's look at verses 26 to 29. We'll call this God's self-glorifying control. 26 to 29. Then it says, have you not heard? So now God is speaking back to the Assyrians. The Assyrian says, look at everything that we've done. We boast in it, this haughtiness that's expressed here. An example of this haughtiness, if you were to look at Isaiah 14, 13, and 14, these are the same words of the king of Babylon and the claims that he makes, this extreme arrogance. So God speaks in verse 26, have you not heard Assyrians? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. So in verse 26, what is God saying? You should understand that prophetically, I am the one that allowed you to do what you're doing. I'm the one that used you to destroy cities. I'm the one that allowed you to, to destroy nations. It's all because of my sovereign hand, which is a thought, if you just briefly look at Isaiah 40, if you will, verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What? I am the one that controls all things. And this is the statement that's being communicated here. Notice, if you will, then he says, therefore, the inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. It's really just recounting how they devastated the lands. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb and as the grass on the housetops is scorched before it grows up. Yes, you did it, but it's only because I planned it. I'm the one that orchestrated your success in devastating the nations because I was using you to punish those who rejected me. Then I will do what? Then I will punish you. But notice, if you will, uh, verse 28. But I know, so now the... Assyrians were saying, we come up or I cut down or I do. Now God says, no, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in for you're raging against me because you're raging against me because your arrogance has come up to my ears. Therefore, I'll put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way in which you came. So God is in absolute control. And what's interesting about the language here, um, look with, if you will, to verse 29. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. Uh, and what God is doing here, and in, one, in one sense, is turning it on the Assyrians because the Assyrians are part of what they would do when they would conquer land. Um, and you see it, even the Babylonians did it to uh, Manasseh later on, and they would put a hook in the leader's nose or even at times in their face and pull them along. And God is saying, I'm gonna do what you've done to others. I will do it to you. Your time has come. God is fighting the battles for his people. Then notice what he says as well. Um, If you might look at chapter 14, 24 to 28. I just want to look at this briefly. Chapter 14, 24 to 28. It says, the Lord of hosts has sworn, sworn, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand to break Assyria in my land. And I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned and who can do what? What does he say? Who can frustrate it? 
and as his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? And the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. God is saying that I am absolute control. Once I've planned it, no one can, in fact, reverse it. So let's consider something else, if you will. Here is a third consideration, a third truth. Number three, God honors himself by providing a prophetic announcement, a prophetic announcement. Verses 30 to 35, the prophetic announcement. Um, Notice what it says in verses 30 and 32. Here's a sign that comes from the Lord. Verse 30, then this shall be a sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself and the second year what springs from the same and the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant and out of Mount Zion survivors And he says what? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So what does this mean? Now, remember earlier, Shennacherib was um, tempting the people to say, wait a minute, why are you going to believe Hezekiah? Why do you trust God? Come out and I'll let each one of you go to your land. You can have figs and you can have dates. And even said, I'll put, I'll give you horses if you can even ride on them. So there was the temptation to accept the offer of the Assyrians. But what we learn here is a great lesson. If we would just wait on the Lord, what God is going to provide is much better, is it not? How many times do people find themselves or find themselves spiritually in trouble? Because there is a temptation of the world that promises them something, but had they not simply waited on the Lord, it would have been much better. And this is what we see happening here. Now, the question is, when does this take place? And most likely it was uh, over a a three-year period, not a full calendar three years, but maybe at the end of one year, an entire year, and into the third years was happening. Maybe about 14 to 15 months, God is saying, you will recover from this siege. You will take root and spring up again. Now, why is this important? You say, what's the significance of this? Because remember, the Assyrians were a devastating people. What do you think they would have done to all their crops in the land? They would have destroyed them all and burned them all. They would have thrown rocks into the fields. They would have devastated it. They'd already cut off the water supplies. And what God is saying, if you would just trust me, I will provide for you. Even though they've devastated your land, I will make it new again. And who's going to do it? He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. That is, my passion for you will bring it about. Here's a fourth truth for us to consider. Number four, God honors himself by faithfully displaying his wrath. So God tells us that God is, he's going to bring his people up again. We see that God does it for the motive, which is his own name, verse 35, and for David's sake. And what is he communicating there? Probably because Hezekiah represents his being like a David. He's saying, I will faithfully protect you because you are like my servant, David. And then God's wrath is going to be displayed. He honors himself by it. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. Familiar story, familiar text, but think about it for a moment. 185,000. 
What I want you to see first is this, the angel of the Lord. That's important because he is the messenger of the Lord. So a distinct messenger that the Lord sends forth. And isn't it interesting? Go with me to chapter 37. Look at verse 9. So we see a contrast. God sends his messenger, the ultimate messenger that represents him. And then in 37.9, it says what? When they heard them saying concerning um, Terhaka, king of Cush, it says, he, was, he has come out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. That is, don't rely on God. So he sent his messengers. Notice also in verse 24, they sent messengers as well. Through your servants, you have reproached the Lord. So your servants came and reproached me. And God is saying, but I'm going to send my messenger and his message is the one that will be heeded. 185,000 people, that's a lot. I mean, think about it for a moment. Um, Van Eyes, imagine if you... If that happened in Van Ness, Van Ness has um, 102,357 people. Everyone in Van Ness dead. Santa Clarita, some of you live there, 210,000 people. Nearly everyone in Santa Clarita dead. Thousand Oaks, You've driven through Thousand Oaks before, get on the 101, beautiful area, 127,000 people as of 2019. Everyone in Thousand Oaks dead. We have a, a study in Burbank. Burbank study, 104,000 people. Everyone would be dead if it struck there. Imagine it. Ventura, 110,000 people. Everyone in Ventura dead. Camarillo, 67,000 people. So it's like you can take everyone from Ventura and also from Camarillo, and still there's 18 more thousand people that would be slaughtered by this one angel. I mean, imagine if you were to get in your car right now and you drive and you leave here and you just see bodies Everywhere in Van Nuys. No one in Van Nuys is alive. And let's take a little trip towards the beach. Let's go to Ventura. No one in Ventura is alive. No one in Camarillo is alive. And it happened in the night and by one angel of the Lord. Because God is saying, I will fight for you. You can't do this. You don't have the power. You don't have the resources. God expressed we can say this, his holiness is expressed in wrath. And the last thought is holiness expressed in fulfillment. And we might even say he faithfully displays his wrath is what I said earlier. Why faithfully displays? Because God made a promise. He promised that he would slay the Assyrians. He promised that Shennacher would go back his way. And God kept his promise, which is what you see. Verse 37, he departed, returned to his house, he goes to his place of worship, and we see this great contrast here. Hezekiah goes to the house of the Lord. Shennacherib goes to his house, and there's a market contrast, isn't there? Uh, one, there is victory, and the other, there is death, because God is the one that's fighting the battle. Let me give you a final thought. Turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And what's our final thought? It's this. God does not disappoint. Amen? Amen. Psalm 22, verse 1. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are, what does he say? What is God? Holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. Not disappointed. Here, the psalmist says there's a moment when he felt forsaken, but ultimately God rescues him. We think about the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he is delivered into the hands of God. This is true through our lives throughout history. There may be moments when we, it seems as if God is not fighting for us. It seems as if he's not on our side and we can be like the psalmist and we can cry out and we can say to the Lord, why do you not answer me? But in the end, we know that God can never disappoint And you can anchor your life in that reality. Father, we thank you for your words you give us. Um, Help us to apply them to our lives. That you're a God that will never disappoint. In Christ's name, amen.